Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Charvuk Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. All right. The G20 summit was recently wrapped up and uh, I actually was uh, interested in doing a podcast. And, and then on 10th of September, Harsh wrote this, um, should I call it an essay? I'll call it an essay because it is more than 800 words. Uh, by today's technical standards of newspaper articles, Harsh wrote an essay on his own Substack, Long India. And it was called uh, as Delhi host G20, the India aka Bharat story is shaping up to be the world's biggest. The virtuous cycle of scale, innovation, and democracy needs to be understood better. I really enjoyed reading it. And I told Harsh, ki bhai, ek kaam kar, podcast pe aja. let us talk about G20 and many other factors in and around it. And Harsh, as always, he never says no to me because he knows if he says no to me, then bad things will happen to him. So <laughs> welcome, Harsh. Hi, Kushil. How are you? So when you were writing the substack, because I did not ask this to you offline, like was this keeping G20 in mind that you were thinking about this or it was just G20 happened to happen at that time? No, G20, I think uh, was a very significant event, but nonetheless, it was a peg. I mean, as I wrote in the piece also in the beginning, you know, giant stories like giant ships, they don't turn around very quickly. Um, so you update them, you update your priors, you don't update them too frequently. Uh, but I think this G20 was significant event, significant enough to comment on it. Um, and I think it, so it definitely moved the needle a bit, but it was not just about the G20. So we'll get into the nitty gritty of the Substack. but for you, what, what stood out as, as, uh, as uh, an observer of geopolitics and you know, economics especially, because these summits, I don't know why people don't want to admit a lot of these summits, the bottom line has to be economics. Otherwise, these summits are pointless, if you ask me. So what what do you make of this entire uh, summit that has just happened? Because there's been a criticism that apparently, I mean, it has been debunked from the government side, but people have criticized you have wasted too much money, etc, etc. So what did you make of this entire summit? I think uh, G20 as a forum itself began actually as an economic forum. It began as a forum to discuss economic issues. And it really kind of took uh, significance and shape at the top leader level after the global financial crisis. So when there was an acknowledgement that uh, the very Western dominated world economy is kind of on its last legs. Don't get me wrong. I mean, the West still disproportionately compared to its population is economically and otherwise influential. But the trend was clear and G20 was one of the ideas, concessions, which kind of went from the finance minister to the prime minister slash president level around 15 years ago. Um, and therefore, I uh, fully agree with you that, of course, you know, um, geoeconomics is an increasingly important part of geopolitics. Of course, you know, it's not economics is not everything. Um, when Russia and Ukraine are fighting it out, there is a huge economic dimension, but nonetheless, the local tactical battle is very much decided by who literally physically prevails. So there is a military angle, there is a morale angle, but economics is increasingly very important for foreign policy. So much so that uh, sometimes you could find uh, Indian economic policy being articulated almost as well by the foreign minister as by the finance minister, or equivalently in the US by the national security advisor as, as much as by the treasury secretary. Um, because it's, uh, you know, the laissez-faire kind of world is gone. We are going back increasingly to a world of industrial policy. States matter again. It's not just unilateral globalization, etc. So state matters, foreign policy and financial policy and are increasingly overlapping. So so absolutely, this is, this is always very important to check. Uh, the, one of the key takeaways of any big jamboree is what was there in economics and also broadly technological terms. Now, to me, what's the, I think, I don't know, there was a lot of furor about the final joint statement. Uh, the critics of the government said, oh, this is this is just a compromise the West or the Western bloc had to do because they wanted to appease India a little bit. And that's why they did this. The Indian side takes this as a huge W. Uh, but before that, <clears throat> what do you make of China and Russia not coming? See, I think... Uh... Russian President Putin could have actually come to India because unlike South Africa, where the BRICS summit had happened just before that, India is not a signatory to the ICC. India was not obligated to arrest 
President Vladimir Putin under whatever warrant is out. Um, so that that was not an angle. Um, but he did not come. I'm sure he's very busy with the war. And then, of course, if you're literally fighting and Ukraine, after all, is a proxy of the West, I mean, what are you going to talk beyond the point, right? So I think Putin not coming was advertised for a long time. Uh, President Xi of China was more of a surprise, him not coming. I think there are multiple theories about it. I think we in India have interpreted it as a deliberate slight, uh, but also deliberate tell that, you know, India kind of got under the skin of Xi Jinping in the sense that India actually had a Global South Summit, literally called a Global South Summit in January of this year. And India has successfully lobbied, for example, African Union to get into G20, which from next year will be G21. The only other kind of multilateral, multinational body which is in the G20 is actually the European Union. Now, African Union is a full member, not a not a guest, but a full permanent member. Uh, so I think, uh, and along with the fact, obviously, that the border between India and China remains hot after three years, or at least not as cold as it used to be before 2020. Um there, there was some kind of rumors that between Modi and Xi, there was like Xi kind of reached out and, you know, once again, the Chinese feel is let the border be aside. Let's just continue with politics and economics as normal. India disagrees with that. And apparently, uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi did not give the kind of concession that Xi Jinping apparently had in mind. He refused to come. I think there was another point that was being mentioned that the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization that was hosted this year by India, Right after, I believe, um, Prime Minister Narendra Modi's visit to Washington, D.C., was held by India in a virtual format. Um, so some people are linking that as well, that, you know, India did not give it enough importance to the SEO uh, meeting, which this year it is chairing. I mean, it was just a coincidence. It's also chairing G20. It's, all, it's on a rotational basis. There was no, there's no logic to it, except it's on a rotational basis. So there were multiple reasons. I mean, more broadly, China seems to have hardened its stand. It's getting a bit closer to Russia, Iran, to some extent, Pakistan. It just recognized Afghanistan fully in the last one week. And it seems to basically say, we don't really care. We, there's no point. G20 may not be useful for us. We'll try to do that through BRICS and SEO and so on and so forth. So there are multiple reasons, but one of them was definitely Xi Jinping uh, Narendra Modi getting under the skin of Xi Jinping. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, uh, and and I before somebody says I am very much aware of the fact that the Russian uh, you know delegation was there and their foreign minister did come. Yeah, yeah. even Modi the Chinese did. delegation was there. A premier came. The Chinese premier came. We are talking about the very top level. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, before somebody accuses uh, us of not knowing this, we do know. But we were just talking about uh, the the top leaders of the of those countries not attending yeah. now on on the african union bit i think this was to me the biggest takeaway for a long time the african union was not getting its uh, share at the table i think th that that to me for personally was the biggest win the w as they say in 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 this particular g20 summit but once again uh, a critical point of view when it comes to all these things is like yeah this is just virtue signaling eventually the world is no longer dealing in these summits the world is one country dealing with another country at an individual level um, a classic example of that is right now India and Canada the trade deal has stopped the negotiations have stopped and I am completely in support of those trade deals stop uh, stopping because I believe the Canadian government <laughs> has uh, let's just put it mildly mess things up monumentally when it comes to their relations with India. And I, and, and it, I would be, you know, committing a gross crime if I don't talk about it. But what did you make of Justin Trudeau? I mean, at least he did not dance. So my good friend, Jonathan Kay, who's a Canadian uh, editor uh, and journalist, <clears throat> he works with Colette Magazine and the podcast both. He's an author too. And Jonathan told me this time, Justin won't dance. That's the only thing you can expect from him. <laughs> No, I, I think it is quite evident that uh, Justin Trudeau was kind of relatively marginalized. Of course, all the respect that was due to his position as for protocol was provided. There was no stinginess or pettiness on that front. But of course, not everything is protocol, right? So there are things beyond that in terms of even small things like the photos the Prime Minister shared. You <laughs> would not really see Justin Trudeau in many of those photos. 
um, and uh, he, I think the press conferences that he had before and after, it was very evident there were tensions. Um, and I think, you know, obviously the Khalistani angle is one angle into that. Um, so the, the good thing is there does not seem to be a bipartisan consensus in Canada. I mean, I'm a distant student of Canadian politics. I don't know much. But it seems like there is not at least a consensus in Canadian politics um, that, you know, it's a smart idea to somehow piss India off. So, so it, it seems to be somewhat localized to this leader and party, although, of course, I would not discount the structural demographic factors in Canadian polity. But nonetheless, it does not seem to be one of those things which everybody in Canada agrees on. So, so we, can, we can buy the time and play along. But what did you make of this uh, stalling the trade deal with Canada from the Indian side? So, so I, I see, I, it's very difficult to, I mean, I'm sure the Indian side stalled it and it's difficult to know like how much the Canadians also stalled it or not. And there are, I mean, any case, trade deals between India and Canada are going to be very tricky. I mean, Canada is a rich country, but for a rich country, Canada and to some extent Australia are basically primary material exporters, right? One of which in the Canadian case is also agricultural exports. Uh, it's difficult yes. for India to um, liberalize that beyond a point. Uh, just like the European unions have so many agricultural subsidies and policies and non-tariff barriers. So it was even in the best of times, uh, Indo-Canadian FTA or even something leading to an FTA um, is not as easy as say an Indo-UK FTA or even an Indo-Australia FTA because at the end of the day, Australia also is a natural resource exporter it's very much in the Indo-Pacific region. And therefore, it is a bit more focused on the immediate threat. Uh, obviously, Canada has the luxury of, you know, being the neighbor of the US and uh, upper Greenland has a polar region. So it has a bit of, uh, we can we can play this another day. So I, I'm not surprised it did not happen. And uh, without a change in government, I don't think much is going to happen. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, you made a very important point. A lot of people don't realize that um, I think half of Canada's muscle flexing is because it's a neighbor of America. I mean, I'm just brutally stating this as someone who has yeah. now lived here enough to understand this country a little bit. I think recently Trudeau did an interview in Singapore in which he was constantly asked again and again that as a NATO member, you have you as in your country have verbally pledged or otherwise that you will hit 2% of GDP as defense spending. And he kept on filibustering on that question. He did not commit even verbally, publicly that he will hit 2% of GDP. So for people, this is a classic case of, you know, you just, you just need to put a Ukraine flag on your social media handle, uh, where you end up saying that, of course, we have to do collectively as the West or as democracies, etc., uh, of course, they conveniently conflate the two Western democracies. and uh, But the country would not increase the fiscal deficit or reduce any welfare spending or increase any taxes for that. Uh, so, so it, I mean, it's a classical political thing. It's not something very unique to Justin Trudeau. It just shows that Canada can get away with it precisely because it knows that for all practical purposes, uh, NATO is run by the US and North America very much is US dominated. Yeah. Now let's get into the essay. Yeah. Now, why did you use these three parameters? Scale, innovation, democracy. Now, I need to understand your rationale behind that. So take some time and explain why these three parameters. I think what happens is uh, a lot of analysis of India, I find frustrating. And I must say that there has been a bit of a shift. There is in the last two, three years, more and more optimistic commentary on Indian economy. Uh, so it's not like so I remember when I kind of coined the phrase long India, I don't know how many years ago, you know, it was, I used to get much more hate on Twitter. So now it seems to be a bit more normalized, but even now the projections, according to me, are gross underestimates. And I could be right or wrong, time will say, but one of the reasons I feel that is these, those tend to be linear extrapolations. People underestimate the virtuous cycle, uh, the snowball effect that can happen. So the, and with scale, innovation, democracy, the three feeding into each other, I wanted to understand that and use kind of G20 as a peg to write about that. So what I meant by scale, obviously, was this classic example is uh, you studied your undergrad in Canada, I did my undergrad in the US. 
there were people from many other emerging economies, students, uh, whose per capita income was and perhaps still is higher than India. But from those countries, people who studied in US, Canada, UK, etc., a, a higher percentage in the last 10, 15 years, I'm guessing, not before that, uh, probably ended up staying in the US compared to people from India, including people who went from India for masters or after their undergrad. And a big reason for that is India, despite being poorer, attracts talent. I quoted a 2017 statistic that in from 2000 to 2017, IIT Bombay, uh, 84% of the graduates in those 17 years chose to stay in India. So I'm assuming that included people who went for masters and came back, etc. And uh, IIT, IIT Bombay computer science is literally what fills up with the top rankers of IIT JE, right? So maybe for some of the quote-unquote lower-ranked IITs, Maybe the number is not 84%, maybe the number is 60%, whatever the number is. But the, not all, of obviously, but large parts, maybe not in the academic side, but a large part of the creme de la creme is actually now staying back in India. It's staying back in India despite $2,500 per capita income, despite various problems of livability in the cities that all of us see on a daily basis, traffic, this and that, right? But there are issues, obviously, right? Despite that people are staying back, it's not just patriotism. Some of it is that. It's not just family. Some of it is that emotion also. But it is also at least ex-anti irrational bet on India's trajectory. They may not have kind of thought about it or written about it or calculated it as explicitly as I or some others do. But it's a, it's a gut instinct. It's a subconscious feeling. It's a semi-conscious feeling that, you know, this is the place to be. And one of the reasons that is, is even though the average per capita income and purchasing power is still very low, it's growing rapidly. And when you multiply that by a billion, billion and a half people, even small niches end up making large markets, or at least the runway for those markets five, 10 years out becomes large enough for a venture capitalist from India or outside an angel investor to give you money for you to start a business on that niche and then play and run along with it. So it's simply this, the effect of scale uh, where, you know, you could not, you would not be, for example, African Union is not one country. Uh, North Africa is Islamic, South Africa is Christian, it's much less dense, infrastructure is less. African Union, Nigeria only recently allowed to have an internal customs union, etc. India is obviously much more coherent. India is not as, quote-unquote, homogeneous as, for example, communist China is. China is also quite diverse, if you study carefully. But India is not as coherent or homogeneous as of now, although it's getting there. So scale is the big reason why talent comes here. You can use tariffs, industrial policy, PLI kind of schemes to force foreign manufacturers to invest in India with not the earlier Nehruvian license. Raj. You tell them, no, no, Hyundai will invest here. Everybody who invests here will get the same treatment, foreign or Indian. But you have to do more and more value add within the borders of India. So you get that pull, you get that negotiating, that monopsony power because of scale. Even though on a per capita basis, you're still quite poor on a relative basis. So you, for a Bangladesh, it says, you know, we are going to put 30% tariffs. Uh, you know, Nokia, Samsung, the Chinese uh, cell phone manufacturers, etc. will not suddenly jump to Bangladesh. Bangladesh is still quite a large country, 150 million people. Uh, but if it's 10 times larger than that, then you really, really want to be in that market because then if not today, in five or seven years, being or not being in that market will make or break your global MNC ambitions. So that creates a sense of inevitability by itself. So that's in scale. That in turn obviously leads to innovation. Innovation is another way of saying productivity, growth, technology. The reason I use the word innovation is more of an active verb rather than a passive verb in the sense that Indians are not just taking technology. They are to some extent. But they're also reorienting it frugally, further inventing it. They're pushing the boundary, for example, in the case of digital public infrastructure, both the state level and the private level. So talent remains because of scale, which further innovates. That leads to more prosperity, more economic freedom and prosperity leads to more political freedom, which brings me to democracy. I mean, remember, the only time India actually had a suspension of democracy for almost two years was in the mid-1970s after a terrible, terrible economic performance in the late 1960s and early, 19, early to mid-1970s. Again, I'm not saying there's a one-to-one -one correlation, but when things really, really, really go bad, the temptation to become a dictator by both civilians and military authorities in India, thankfully the latter has not happened, is higher. 
And so, so you have more talent staying back, more innovation, more growth. Democracy gets strengthened. People get together. And that democracy in turn feeds back into scale. India has obviously been the world's largest democracy since uh, 1947 or 1950 or 1952, the first elections. But around this year, it has also become the world's largest polity. So as I always say, if the macro picture is last 300 years was global divergence, and since the last 30 years, you're doing global convergence, then suddenly it matters if you are a large polity. Whereas in a completely divergent and globalizing free market world, being Singapore and Hong Kong was very good. But if you take 10, 20 years down the road, Singapore and Hong Kong might still survive in very good shapes as exceptions. But if you have a large enough hinterland of your own market, then your economic policies can go much further as opposed to countries that are smaller. So, and that, of course, India is united because of democracy. There is no way on earth India could be ruled by a dictator because of the Bengali, Punjabi, caste, at least Xi Jinping people may like or not like in China, but nobody is saying that he was from Shanghai or Beijing or caste, right? And people may like or dislike him within China, but those fissures, at least at this moment in China, are not there because the Han Chinese are effectively 90% plus of the Chinese. So, so the Han, of course, itself is a state-created, contrived, to some extent, identity. Uh, the script was standardized. The spoken dialects are still different in southern China compared to northern China. But intermarriages are common. The, the, that sense of the Chinese being a, ruled by a dictator is therefore, in the ironic sense, made plausible by that level of homogeneity. Whereas in India, only democracy can keep us united and therefore lead to that economic scale, therefore lead to that catch-up innovation. So that, and this cycle becomes a virtuous cycle. The richer you get, the more you can bargain for technology and innovate further. And the stronger your democracy, the larger your scale, not just internally, the final point before I hand it back to you is, of course, while, of course, it's hard real politic, as realists would say, the West going against China. But there is a somewhat constructivist ideological point as well. The Chinese are an authoritarian country. It makes people more uncomfortable about them. So when you are a democracy, a secondary point, not the primary point, it becomes easier for you to trade with other people or exchange technologies. Uh, so that, so the, then the scale is not limited just to your country, which in the case of India is now the world's largest country, but also beyond in a way that the Chinese are now closing down. It's a gradual process and Indians are now opening up. So, so that furthers that point of scale and therefore innovation and therefore coming back via democracy. Now, there are two queries I had. So recently there was a report uh, by Henley Private Health Migration, they created a report where they showed 6,500 Indian millionaires and their families are expected to leave the country. China tops the list with 13,500. And uh, there was even a graph, uh, I remember, of another report that showed most of the times the, the countries that these people end up going to right now are now the Western nations, by and yeah. large, Canada and America, preferably Canada and America. Also, and Europe, Australia. And Australia, European Union. Now, what is interesting is the sleight of hand in this report. Because now I have understood living here. A lot of people take these citizenships for other reasons. Because it's easier to travel. So when they quote government data for India, what the so there was a question asked to the government, right? And the government said, yes, these many people have given up Indian citizenship in the last few years. That's all the government said. What the government does not have a data for is how many are still staying in India even after giving up the citizenship. For example, OCI. Now, if you're an OCI cardholder outside of owning agricultural land and voting in an election, you can pretty much do everything you want to do in India. You can own the same company that you were owning previously even after you have given up your passport. You just have to tell the tax authorities, I'm an OCI, but everything remains the same. I pay the same taxes, etc. The reason I, in a lot of cases with rich people, I'm not saying that's the only reason, is ease of travel. I, as someone who has to take visas every single time, I can vouch for that. It is irritating to travel on an Indian passport. If you have a Western passport and you end up traveling a lot to certain countries, there is an advantage. That is point number one. But 
तेरे को याद नहीं होगा मगर मैंने हमारे वो व्हाट्सएप ग्रुप में मैंने एक एक इमेज शेयर की थी विच आई वॉन्ट टू शेयर अगेन बिकॉज दिस फिगर नाउ दिस इज अनदर रीजन आई थिंक अ लॉट ऑफ हाई नेटवर्थ इंडियंस एंड पता नहीं हमारे सरकारों में का बात करने की हिम्मत क्यों नहीं ये एक इनकम था आउटवर्ड डायरेक्ट इन्वेस्टमेंट याद है हाउ एंड वेर इंडियन मनी इज गोइंग आउटवर्ड डायरेक्ट इन्वेस्टमेंट फ्रॉम इंडिया वन वो सिंगापोर इंक्रीज हुआ है यूएसए यूके नेदरलैंड नाउ व्हाई इज सिंगापोर इंक्रीजिंग हर्ष इज इन दिस वन ऑफ द रीजंस फॉर द इंक्रीज इन आउटवर्ड इन्वेस्टमेंट फ्रॉम सिंगापोर एंड लुक एट बम्यूडा लुक एट स्विट्जरलैंड साइप्रस एवरीबॉडी नोज व्हाई दिस मनी इज इंक्रीजिंग इन मॉरिशस it is because of draconian tax laws right so considering teri long india ki view how do you answer this this scenario see um first of all 6500 people versus 13000 in china the multiple ways to slice and dice it. uh broadly the populations are the same in both the countries uh china mein number zyada hai but then of course one can make the argument china mein amir log bhi zyada hai so you have to normalize with that as well uh broadly it does not seem to be very different let's just put it that way uh, there is no order of magnitude difference and some people will always leave as you said it's ease of travel i personally support dual citizenship you don't that's fine we can that's a separate uh, podcast uh usko ek baar chhod dete hain and kuch paisa idhar you're right some people are putting money out which will effectively be round trip in legal or otherwise sense taxation is one aspect of it but as you also rightly mentioned a lot of people will then even after getting a passport stay in india or even when they are not staying in india they are economically active in india for example siddharth lal runs iker motor sitting in london um there are many indian multi billionaires who half the year might be outside of india with which may or may not have taxation uh, implications or even motivations in terms of dividends being taxed etc right this uh, there are there are obviously a lot of nuances to it and they have some of the world's best cas and lawyers to advise them okay so there is a, their taxation is very much a, a reform that is due in india on the personal side corporate side to the ho gaya indirect side will be ho gaya some steps are left but direct personal taxation reform is still due there's a committee there's a report it is not publicly made available uh, people say because it actually uh, kind of uh, suggested radically lower tax rates and flatter tax rates uh, maybe have implications down the road about taxing farmers as well all that's a straight subject and so on and so forth i think the government so a lot happened during the pandemic the government cut corporate taxes so it may happen in narendra modi's third term um we don't know so i i and while i is very much support uh, lowering direct personal tax peak rates because ultimately it's not i just don't think it comes to defense i don't think it comes to just bringing indians back or not preventing them from going i also want non indians to work in india i want expat populations to grow in india and uh, for one of the things for example india does not have a good pr process there's no kind of step by step legitimate legal pr green card equivalent process in india right uh, and i think that's self defeating because uh, it, it just becomes difficult for people to just make it easy now sometimes we undersell ourselves india might be at 2500 dollars but there are many parts of gurgaon bangalore and mumbai where global talent wants to come and be a part of india startup ecosystem for example so why would you say no to them right it doesn't make any sense you want to agglomerate more and more talent not just indian talent of course primarily it will be indian talent but you want to agglomerate all talent so so yeah i think taxation reform is part of it but the larger picture is that even if some of these people leave just a drop in the bucket this is a complete drop in the bucket that compared to the talent that is in the pipeline compared to the wealth that is being created you know if 10 years may agar 6500 multiplied by 10 65000 hota main 1 lakh bhi maan lo aur sabne you know 1.1 million people went picking a million dollar each to kitna hota hai 100 billion dollars 100 billion dollars over 10 years that's a, that's equivalent to remittances of one year coming to india right Uh, sure there's a gross number but net is almost the same so it really doesn't does not really move the needle in any significant way whatsoever the bottom line is the indian elite is by and large very happy to be in india there are some taxation issues here and there there are urban living issues there are issues of getting these visas especially when you go to schengen countries etc there are all kinds of problems but by and large the indian elite are happy to be in india and unlike the chinese elite uh, they are not always looking behind their shoulders हाँ विद इन द पॉलिटिकल सर्कल दर इज एन इशू की भैया कल ईडी रेट पर गया मैंने करप्शन करी थी बट द कमर्शियल 
upper middle class professional elite the technical elite uh, beyond delhi not just in delhi in delhi also is they are very much comfortable being rooted or having one leg in india um and it's that kind of you know if you do massive corruption in ccp then you buy uh, a flat in vancouver for your daughter your wife or your mistress us type of kaam nahi hai india mein to that extent i'm not saying kabhi nahi hota i'm simply saying to that extent it's not there because people by and large are happy being in india so both anecdotally and quantitatively the numbers are not a massive blip in the overall narrative and let us be very clear some people will want to leave no matter what you're still a relatively poor country uh, you're not you don't have that kind of lgbt rights just to take an example there might be some rich indian muslims who may not agree that there is a lot of anti muslim bigotry in india but they just don't want their children to grow in that situation uh, maybe one or two other there are all all these kind of cases which do not represent the mainstream opinion even within their own communities mm-hmm. but you, uh, it's a globalized world how do you prevent people from going 6500000 people kisi ne udhar college kiya udhar bahar rehna chahta maybe he has married a foreigner she has married a foreigner uh, you know it's just personal reason so i don't think it's a big enough number in any and the trend is also not big enough a lot of people mentioned about 2022 But what 2020, 2021 का जो kind of backlog था वो भी था यू नो यू हैव टू आल्सो एडजस्ट फॉर द पैंडेमिक बैकलॉग देयर वाज वन मोर स्टैटिस्टिक दैट यू शेयर्ड इन योर सबस्टैक यू टॉक्ड अबाउट स्कूल एनरोलमेंट सेकेंडरी ग्रोस परसेंटेज नाउ आई आई एग्री विद यू एजुकेशन में एनरोलमेंट बढ़ रही है दोस आर ऑल गुड साइंस बट आई मीन समवन हुज बुक यू टोल्ड मी टू रीड डॉक्टर पनगरियास बुक ही टॉक्स अबाउट the quality of educated individuals that india is producing is still not up to the mark where and especially post covid i i don't know if you read this uh, studies which said ki wo bachcho ko pass kar rahe the and it is very dangerous we were not creating that level of caliber ke students because homeschooling jo wo digitally kar rahe the it was just not sustainable uh again when it comes to number of phd's we produce is very less and i'm not talking about phd's in uh, humanities i'm talking about phd's overall we are uh, also lagging behind in uh, uh, research so w- where do you think uh, is the solution for that because yeah maybe you can have absolute numbers but at the end of the day uh, absolute numbers are just one metric right but the quality of the population's education is also no absolutely you're absolutely right uh, kushal i mean i did not just share the uh, percentage enrollment on a gross basis at secondary education i also shared sanitation electricity and drinking water access yes the overall idea was to show the trend i think it's every it's, everybody agrees that uh, the average indian compared to the average global citizen or the average human being or the average westerner for sure or average japanese and south korean is not is still getting a raw deal the question is the trend so the idea was let's take a global average on these very social metrics education health kind of proxy by sanitation electricity drinking water potable water and see usme global average kahan pe hai and how rapidly is the indian average either converging or crossing if at all it is converging and in many of these metrics you finding the indian metrics are converging and some of them they've crossed as well internet access is another one i put in there and uh, you're right about on now let's go specially to education there is a quality issue of course it goes without saying there's a quality issue in many other countries as well india might be a bit on the lower side there was an economist piece on at what grade does an indian girl in a rural school understand Uh, reading a full sentence, etc. And Pratham does those ASER surveys. That remember, the rural surveys are not all India surveys. Sure, quantity has its own quality, but there are problems in other countries as well. Uh, famously, China did the PISA survey, which we did not join, uh, but that was only for a couple of cities in China, Shanghai, and a couple of cities. It's not representative of all of China. Uh, yes, pandemic-related uh, uh, pedagogical losses were there, but then again, they were also there in most of the countries. So I think that again, the point is. quality is not good on average i i mean i support school choice for one of those reasons same tax rupees can go to poor parents and mothers to choose for their sons and daughters a budget private school and they can top up if they want uh but that's a policy this that's a normative decision existing may the point is secondary i chose because primary is already 100% um and a lot of higher education there's a lot of debate that yes it should be more but then some should go to vocational 
there's a social element to of it as well you know rajaji had a scheme in tamil nadu people said you know aapke liye vocational bolna bahut zaruri hai kind of just perpetuating a certain social hierarchy system so that's a, another controversy by itself but secondary education is kind of the middle point where you definitely everybody agrees ki people should be at more or less high school pass outs right and there i was trying to show that the gross enrollment is going toward 100% and it's converging with the global average global per capita income is around 12500 dollars at market exchange rate our per capita income is 2500 dollars right so the global per capita income is five times that of india and on a cost of adjusted living uh, basis pgp basis thoda sa kam hai but five times on a market exchange basis and on all these social indicators we are rapidly converging and have already converged so the point i was trying to make was since these indicators are about a younger population health education internet access sanitation drinking water time saved thereof these are leading indicators so you know imagine if this is what the, this is basically the pipeline the the channel of human capital that is on the way if they are converging or have converged or in some cases have crossed the global averages it is only logical then to assume that with some lag they will also converge or cross the global per capita income average so that is the kind of correlation or uh, it's not a one to one correlation that's the correlation i was trying to depict um with a force with a lag so that was the point of those five six social socio economic indicators uh, being leading indicators and how does india compare to global averages i think one but, more but issue... your point is but your but your point is right about the quality i mean on a standard on basis i fully agree with it another topic that's very sensitive now i have been an open supporter of scst reservations i think a lot of net migration out of india also happens because of you know reservations a certain class of people again i am not saying that scst should not get reservation i actually believe they should get reservations but i have always been consistent i opposed anything post mandal everything post mandal i have opposed including ews including obc reservations i believe that 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 has just opened up andorra's box but that is besides the point that is not my mood my mood point now is there is a growing now because this has a direct effect on the india story arch there is a growing tendency inside the indian political class since the success of the bjp led uh, uh, nda of i don't know what dole based economics a lot of doles are being given by states and the promises that i hear at times in the election manifestos like the aam aadmi party keeps making outrageous promises and many other governments do and and then in in the competitive landscape that we are in bjp led governments also have to make many of those promises like i remember the famous incident of uh, the second term of narendra modi where they were going to uh, you know add free electricity in the gujarat manifesto arun jetli ji was and mm. i remember the story at that time where modi ji said i am resigning from the cm ship if that is the case i don't believe in that but prime minister modi and chief minister modi are two very different people i understand but what do we do about so what do you think this doles uh, uh, based economics model is going to have an effect on the india story see uh, i'm from calcutta originally right and uh, when i was growing up in calcutta there was a communist government uh, and so i did my schooling there ended up going to college after a brief detour to a college in a state called new hampshire which is its motto is live free or die kind of a libertarian state or at least thinks it's libertarian state uh, so you go from communist state to libertarian state and you see the big difference in living standards and i was a college libertarian very much i actually founded the college libertarian chapter over over the years i have revised many of my positions i think some of those positions were naive if well intentioned see uh, first of all the word dole has very negative connotation i am not in support of using the word dole because or too often what it happens is i mean i understand there should be some stigma to just getting for the sake of getting so i'm not fully against it but what happens is if political party you support over welfare scheme ho jati hai political party you don't support over dole ho jata hai wo so conceptually koi farak nahi but uh, there's a larger point when i was mentioning about that scale and innovation slash prosperity and democracy angle 
the point of that innovation is it pays for tax rupees, which in turn makes that innovation through the democracy possible and exploits at scale. What do I mean by that? I have a definition of modernity that at least I have not read anywhere else, but I actually have a definition of modernity. My definition of modernity is where ex ante you can get people to trade the possible loss of relative gains or status for a much more plausible gain in absolute terms. I'll repeat that again. So modernity is when you can induce people uh, to believe that the absolute upside is worth the risk of a relative downside. So even though they might go from 80th percentile, let's say if you're talking in terms of income to 50th percentile, in that transition, nonetheless, the real incomes will, let's say, grow by 30%. Now, of course, if they are sure that they are nonetheless going from 80th percentile to 50th percentile, they may not even still take that deal. But ex ante, they're not sure. They think they might still be, they might benefit both absolute and relative terms. Similarly, in social uh, situations, we can extrapolate that, where people are ready for a more socially mobile and overall dynamic economy, country, and society with the risk that they might be one of the relative losers, but absolute winners. So modernity is about inducing that trade-off. One way you induce that trade-off is the welfare state. The welfare state should be as efficient as possible. There's a problem with public unions. I often say how much welfare versus how to welfare are two separate questions. How much welfare is a normative or political question. How to be more efficient about it is a technocratic economic question. It's a, it's a positivist question. How much is a deontological question? Now, how to may, obviously, the jam trinity, the Aadhaar, these kind of things are helping us reduce leakages, which is the euphemism for corruption, right? You can have direct bank transfers, et cetera, et cetera. So it is very important to understand that when you GST, demonetization, you are bringing in more and more formalized and organized sector growing rapidly on steroids. There were a lot of people in the informal sector, including their employees, small businesses, which were hurting. Some of them are still hurting. So it is precisely because you put a floor, including, for example, free grains. Again, maybe not the first best solution, but because we have a strong MSP program, therefore your go-downs have too much grains. If you don't use them, they will anyway rot. Usko welfare instead of direct cash, for example. Right? Second best but practical solutions. If you don't have that basic net, now, the debate is always perpetual. And the second debate, as I mentioned, is how to make it more efficient. We all want to make it more efficient unless we have a vested interest. right? So it is important because that allows the economy to become much more competitive, dynamic, have unemployment on a short-term basis because then they will get absorbed somewhere else. What is known as Shamterian kind of you know, creative destruction. Because, you know, you didn't go to my paper factory, my textile factory, I closed it, I'm doing something else. Any person who is in paper or textile, he's doing it more efficiently. I'm doing something which I'm doing more efficiently. But if there is no process to grease that in a democracy, it becomes more difficult for that change to happen. So it's very important to have welfare. Now the question is, how do you do it in a more structured format? So I think, the first thing is that welfare or be hoga in coming times, not just in India, across the world. Because in fact, in Western democracy is even more likely because technology, services, exports will put their middle class now, not just the blue collar labor, but the white collar jobs in direct competition to Indian jobs, for example. They can be outsourced to somebody in Bangalore or Pune. Uh, the COVID has further accelerated that trend. So you will find more and more. Now, problem is it gets abused, including in US and UK. Too many people are on disability benefits when they don't necessarily have any disability. right? The point is to make the system more honest and more efficient. But there is no getting away from a welfare state, ironically, in a modern capitalistic system. So which is why I like the term social market democracy. So market point be important, a social point be important, a democracy point be important. So this, this idea of there's a libertarian, no welfare guy, and then there's a Marxist, Far left guy, reality is much more in the middle. So it's not a, I don't see it as a BJP thing. We need guardrails. We need more competitive federalism. Um, uh, for example, so what the opposition did in terms of going back to the old pension system, 
जो डिफाइंड बेनिफिट्स का था जिसको हम बोलते हैं डिफाइंड कॉन्ट्रीब्यूशंस नहीं था एनपीएस के अलग था दैट वाज वेरी वेरी इरिस्पॉन्सिबल एंड इट सीम्स दैट पीपल नीड टू बी मोर मोर अवेयर दैट इफ यू आर गिविंग बेनिफिट्स टू वेरी स्मॉल माइक्रो माइनॉरिटी ऑफ रिटायर्ड पब्लिक सेक्टर सर्विस इफ यू डोंट मेक अ नॉइज अबाउट इट दे विल डू इट एंड अगेन अगेन एंड अगेन फॉर मोर वेस्टेड इंटरेस्ट ग्रुप्स एंड दैट्स अ कांस्टेंट स्ट्रगल इन एनी पॉलिटिक्स बट द सिस्टम ओवरऑल वर्क्स so that, that that's why i'm very structurally bullish about india and part of the reason is it's a democracy it is a it is a union but it is also a federation uh, where you can't secede but it's still a it still has this kind of internal competition aspects to it yeah it's very interesting you know the libertarians in america they are actually there are some of them who are pro universal basic income very interesting they 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 for some of these reasons yeah their 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 argument in favor of uh, universal basic income is uh, is based on uh, uh, very interesting lines uh, uh, that you have used over here it's it's very 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 similar argumentation and look i i understand the need of a welfare state because when you have hordes and hordes in any society that just don't have you know any kind of support system so i'm not you know calling for some libertarian utopia in fact i believe no utopia works and the curse of humanity is the utopian thinking whether it's yeah. a utopian socialist state or a utopian libertarian state they just don't work so, and and people may not like this idea in fact which is why even in the case of temple freedom i have always added this caveat I'm, I, this is not the aim of the discussion Kush, i'm just Kush, using this Kushal, you are you're throwing in all the hot button issues beech mein hai side mein hai ऐसे होता है ऐसे जाते जाते मैं ऐसे उंगली करके चले जाता हूँ ऑन द टेम्पल इशू आई सेट ये टेम्पल फ्रीडम फ्रॉम द गवर्नमेंट इज वेरी इंपॉर्टेंट बट चॉइस टू रिमेन इन द गवर्नमेंट इज ऑल्सो इक्वली इंपॉर्टेंट विच अ लॉट ऑफ टेम्पल फ्रीडम फोक्स रिफ्यूज टू टॉक अबाउट बिकॉज आई मीन द डिफॉल्ट एजम्पन एवरी टाइम इज द गवर्नमेंट इज इनफिशियंट I don't live with that default assumption that the government is inefficient per se. I believe whatever is efficient and whatever works should be adopted, irrespective of the public option or the private option. But now I want to start taking uh, comments and questions. Now, yar, ye mere ko kya hai? Aajkal de-dollarization and BRICS currency ke upar bahut log charcha kar rahe. What are your views on this? See, there's nothing called a BRICS currency. I mean, BRICS itself is an organization where the Chinese want the Indians to stay because they want to pretend that there is an anti-Western organization, and the Indians want to stay because they want to make sure it does not become a Chinese organization. <laughs> I mean, people who literally are fighting each other, they're in an organization. How can they have a currency together? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Now, on the broader point of de-dollarization, I've mentioned multiple times. there is a structural trend there is a cyclical trend cyclically we are very close to a dollar peak i've been saying it for few years and i've been wrong in terms of calling the peak but we are very close and if you look at from 1970s chart right it, is, it goes up for 7 8 years sometimes for 10 12 years then comes down for 7 8 years and there are good reasons for that cycle the way the dynamics works out which is the pandemic um, to some extent technology and shale gas delayed this particular dollar peak by some years so the dollar is due for a cyclical fall irrespective of the geopolitics that we are discussing uh but structurally there is no substitution for the dollar so to understand this to understand this the world's gdp is a bit more than 100 trillion dollars i think financial assets are about 200 trillion dollars to 250 something like that the global market cap is very similar to global gdp and then i'm just adding the bonds i'm not counting real estate here so financial assets uh and so everybody who has a financial portfolio wants to keep some optional liquidity right that liquidity in a global setting the most liquid place on earth are american treasuries I mean, they are also not liquid enough ironically but in the sense that the most safest liquid place for you to hide um because a lot of people mentally think of their net worth in terms of dollars not just americans um so it is the world's largest economy even now in market exchange terms there are around 26 27 trillion dollars the chinese are actually down 17 trillion dollars from 18 because the yuan has been depreciating a bit uh, so there's still a good 10 trillion odd gap between the us and china in in hard dollar terms um and the us debt market is bigger chinese are fast catching up and they they have an open capital account so non americans can put money in and take out money at any any time they want so it's a very liquid market and there's no other market in the world which has that size and that openness 
the only country that will be actually able to challenge and not in a competitive sense, but in a coexisting sense will be India in 10, 15 years. Uh, unless the Chinese political system changes and it, it ideologically becomes okay with an open capital account, uh, because that will mean CCP letting go of control. The European unions, unless they federalize and become a United States of Europe, and Japan, unless it suddenly becomes very rapidly productive, because Japan is just a bit too small, 125 million odd people. So even though the most plausible candidates are actually EU, especially post-Brexit and China, they both have structural issues, whereas India, a fellow social market democracy, but eight times smaller right now, will be in a position to be a parallel, not just hard, but reserve currency in 15 years, 12 to 15 years. So, uh, so it's de-dollarization is very gradually happening, but anything based on actionable item, uh, it's very difficult to say that. And BRICS is just a complete red herring in that context. Yeah, even, I mean, I, I try to understand, like I remember in 1819, and correct me if I'm wrong, we started paying Iran in rupees for the oil we purchased from then. Uh, I think we have started paying Russia also. In, in they have also started we taking pay, payments. We pay, so we, we create something called Vostro accounts. So we pay the Russians a lot of rupees. The problem is the Russians are now saying, what do we do? Because our trade balance is very lopsided. We mostly, the amount of crude we imported from them in the last couple of years, we don't export as much machinery, etc. to them. And because the capital account is not so open, see what happens, liquidity is a classic, another virtuous cycle. The more liquid an asset becomes, the further liquid it will become. Because then more people keep, it's like classic network externalities. You join a social media platform because more people are there. And therefore, even more people have to join that particular platform, which is by Twitter, Twitter and who is not there, as an example. So that's the way you need to think about liquid assets and currencies. So Russia is saying, I have billions of dollars equivalent of rupees. I will do it. So that is going on for 7-8 months. That, okay, we'll allow you to do this, we'll allow you to do that. You can invest in Indian capital markets, Indian bonds, Indian FAR route, Indian equities. It becomes very difficult, which is why Indian bureaucrats and technocrats at some point will have to let go of control. The only way, ironically, to have monetary autonomy is to let go. It's a very profound kind of psychological thing. You let go of the rupee and then the rupee becomes dominant. And you let go by building up enough reserves, which we can do in the next couple of years. So I think it will happen sooner or later. Is that just a matter of debate? Uh, right now, when when Iran or, or Russia, Iran with the level of Russia, Russia dynamics, what do they do with those rupees if there is a relatively one-way trade? And that is where the point of you having an open capital account becomes important. The Russians got frozen, got froze out of uh, frozen out of the European and American kind of capital markets. All their foreign exchange reserves between euros and dollars are frozen. Uh, they have frozen some American MNC profits, but that's just not comparable. Uh, which is one of the reasons why people are also talking about de-dollarization. That America, if it's going to so blatantly weaponize the dollar, uh, how long can it remain? Well, if there is no alternative, it can remain for long. I mean, power is what power does. The strong will do what they want. The weak must suffer what they must. That's ancient Greek saying. So, so people oh my God, the Chinese own so many American treasuries. What if they sell them suddenly? The Chinese have leverage on the Americans. And suddenly, what I've been saying for a long time, they realize, wait a second, the Americans have leverage on the Chinese, not vice versa. The, um, the Chinese sent real goods, sold them to Americans and got IOUs in return. If they sell it to try to somehow break the American economy or dollar, they can just print it. You, you can't compete with the Fed in printing dollars. Only the Fed can print dollars. Yeah. You were the one who they had by the balls, not vice versa. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great geopolitical and geoeconomic leverage to eventually have your own hard currency, which again goes back to the point of scale. The larger you become, the more likely you're likely to have a more uh, reserve currency, provided you're innovative and you're democratic because then you're more likely to have an open capital account. Because you're going to be in commercial kind of uh, union with other countries, other democracies. Okay, somebody has asked about the what are your views on the women reservation issue, and and do you think that will have? I will twist it. Do you think that also will again impact the long India story positively, negatively? 
what do you make of that that so, i think i think you are also mentioned with so many issues like you know temple ka temple fiduciary hona chahiye we can go on debate i don't think the quota story actually leads to uh, forget women reservation at parliamentary level but even caste quotas i don't think actually hurt the india story to that extent the issue was you just had a few iits uh, and the private colleges were very expensive especially in medical for example now what they've done in the last 9 10 years is they've rapidly increased the number of iits and aims and equivalent and iims some including converting some older institutes or not with those names but the, now they have those names and initially the purists i mean i briefly attended iit delhi before dropping out and i know a lot of people who were like oh my god it's such a sare iit bana rahe hamara brand dilute ho jayega fir bolne lage nahi nahi fir ki iit bombay iit delhi ka alag brand rahega nahi iit ka utna brand nahi rahega so the point is you were trying to fight over a very small pie when the number of indians who had completed school were dramatically increasing year by year the number of smart people within that cohort was also increasing it is but natural to increase the number of iits and equivalent institutes so the point on reservation is of course there is a social political angle to it you can debate that an obc and this and that in second generation but the first thing you had to do was increase supply now whether you do it through the government whether you do it by liberalizing uh, education through foreign and private universities for other big political angle are the shoga me dekho kya ho gaya ideological angle are gaya but the main point is you need to have more supply which is what i think is finally happening two steps forward one step backward when that happens the quota point while being very relevant because obviously somebody is getting in at a lower cut off somebody else is not and then what are the broader implications and it's just in a certain way it is not just in a certain way and we can discuss that but sabse important is supply increase karo supply increase over as so then what's the big point uh the large, more and more people can become iitians and equivalent so i it was it was a you know aapko agar aap ladne ke mood mein ho to aap ye point leke ladoge ya percentage pe focus kar rahe ho main focus kar raha hu absolute number of seats pe so even though if the so called general quota percentage goes in and i by the way support ews uh then the overall number of seats is still increasing even at a so called lower percentage and i think that is the more relevant metric that opportunity is the more relevant metric in any case we are not going to uh, suddenly change the society and polity of india in two years right these are inch long forces there are reasons why india is politically divided we can go into whether indians are indian or intermarrying each other or not what does caste really mean why is it easy to divide indians especially hindus and not others wo ek alag debate ho jayega but aap pehle supply increase karo na to ye wala point ki uski severity hai wo thodi kam ho jayega now as far as the actual absolute numbers are concerned indian female labor force particip- participation as per statista is 23.97% in 2022 it is a very low number now here's the thing if more and more indian women enter the labor force participation market actually it, it is a net boon for our for for our economy the more productive people there are the better off an economy is but uh, i i have not really i i i don't know if the women reservation bill will become a reality i highly doubt it in fact it's very interesting that in terms of political parties there is only one political outfit that i know of that uh, actually has a reservation system inside its own enterprise that is the bjp bjp actually has fixed seats for women per se now india has tried women reservation uh, in the panchayat level not in the other levels mp mla for example and uh, pratisha had come on the podcast a while ago i think 2 years ago and she had explained how that has helped and there are studies showing that it has helped women and their participation in rural india but that is for uh, some other day now before we wrap it up harsh because we've almost touched the hour mark here so if so what what could be the because i think it's an important question to ask in an what could be the possible scenarios where your model of long india what would need your for your model of long india to collapse and not come out so a lot of people ask me that question i mean i can say a lot of things about the female reservation quota but in in, in for time purposes i'm just answering this last question you asked um people say what about elections what about politics right what about the wrong leader getting elected or to put it more starkly you know what if people vote for rahul gandhi and not narendra modi what if people vote for mamta banerjee etc 
ठीक है पॉइंट ऑफ व्यू माय आंसर टू दैट इज ऑन अ सीरियस नोट आई मीन वी कैन ऑल डू पॉलिटिकल बैंटर हु डजंट एंजॉय दैट बट द पॉइंट इज पॉलिटिक्स इज आल्सो इंडोजिनस टू द मॉडल सो आई एट लीस्ट ट्राई टू हैव अ होलिस्टिक वर्ल्ड व्यू आई एम नॉट सेइंग आई गेट इट राइट व्हाट आई मीन बाय दैट इज एज आई मेंशन दैट इनोवेशन एंड प्रॉस्पेरिटी इन टर्न अफेक्ट्स द डेमोक्रेसी एस्पेक्ट ऑफ इट एज पीपल गेट रिचर दे आल्सो बिकम मोर मोबाइल राइट आई मीन so my family's roots on father's side in haryana mother's side in rajasthan as born in calcutta my wife's family roots are in from you know bangladesh to myanmar i'm living in mumbai and so on and so forth uh it becomes you lead to a more coherent polity and therefore no matter what the vehicle or what the symbol or what the stamp or the name of the individual on the winning ballot is people are likely to vote more and more as indians which we are already seeing there are more and more wave elections last year not just at the national level but at the state level as well earlier there always used to be the saying that you know indian elections just a, are just an aggregation of local elections there is no grand narrative in india there is no larger picture so and at some point it was true i mean if you listen to nilkanth mishra formerly fred swiss now with access when till 15 20 years ago there were not many rural pakka roads there was no mobile phones for these unfortunately underprivileged people uh, forget uh, sanitation electricity and water the kind we have right now and it's still ongoing process so it was actually very common for a lot of especially older poorer villagers 15 20 years ago to not even know the name of the country's president or prime minister बिकॉज उसका क्या जा रहा है ना उसका तो लोकल एक फ्यूडल पैट्रीमोनियल जो रिलेशनशिप है विद लोकल काइंड ऑफ गुंडा लॉर्ड जो बोलना है बोल लो नॉट मच चेंज ओवर सोशल मीडिया I mean, somebody is telling me that if you go and see OTT numbers, especially proprietary internal OTT numbers on Netflix, Amazon Prime, including from the hinterland tier two, tier three cities, villages, the number of K-pop or K-dramas, Korean dramas people are watching in translation is off the charts in India. So it's a complete revolution mentally. जो लोग अपने गांव में थे या अपने बस्ती में थे 20 years ago. They are physically very much there, but increasingly the younger people are digital natives. they are human at a larger level they are indian at a larger level they are hindu at a larger level uh so that that sense obviously then percolate to politics as well so i'm not trying to say ki bhaiya jo interview mein bolte na tumhari weakness kya hai bro or applicant weakness ke naam pe ek strength bhi bol deta ki i'm too punctual sometimes or you know so i understand ki tumne ek bahut serious question pucha hai and i'm not being able to give you a very serious negative point in the long india thesis but the negative point remains politics very much nothing is predestined if we make wrong choices as a country we will end up having wrong outcomes but the caveat i'm adding there the asterisk i'm adding there is politics is also endogenous politics is also in turn influenced by economics by technology by global factors by the way we interact with each other right now you and i are doing a platform we are doing a podcast through the internet we are on two different ends of the earth right and it's normal it's totally normal so i i think it's that is important to understand that politics remains the single biggest risk because its creation of the indian state is is completely utterly new it has transformed everything in the civilization we were a civilization without a, without a backbone when we did not have a state especially a modern state just like jews were a civilization or a smaller civilization without a state ours was a similar but not exactly same story but on a much larger scale so the state is there and therefore what we do with the state is very much relevant again with the caveat being that in turn is not just some exogenous variable kind of due am akin it also depends on the way we interact with each other socially and commercially fair enough uh, uh, as far as i'm concerned i think the political aspect of it is the most important one if if there is a political change in this country uh, i think the india story can be affected grossly uh people might say oh that's because you vote for the bjp yeah there is a reason i vote for the bjp i genuinely believe in 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 the other side harming india economically and that is the bottom line and people 
I mean, it's, it's, I mean, all I can tell those people is, well, hello, Captain Obvious. Obvious. <laughs> That's a, it's so obvious that I uh, I am saying that for the reason. But uh, overall, I'm in sync with your thoughts. I think when when you look at India on multiple parameters, even from an internal security perspective, which is, I think people don't realize one of the most important aspects of a stable economy is an economy that from a country that has good internal security. And when I look at India maintaining overall, on average, better internal security year after year, yeah. I think the India story is very clear. It is going to go another way direction. of saying state capacity, basically. As yes, we, you, I think you only mentioned that book to me, right? Uh, yeah, by, uh, that, uh, what's the Harvard academic? Devesh Kapoor, was it? Devesh Kapoor, yeah. Internal yeah, security yeah. in India. That was the literally right. name of the book. And, yeah. and and if we are going in that direction, uh, I believe it's a good sign. In fact, one of the biggest roadblock, in my opinion, the one roadblock that can come into your hypothesis of long India is internal security. That as long as India keeps maintaining internal security very well, I think we are on the right track, but we'll end it here. Harsh, before I end it, anything else you wanted to add? Uh, no, Kushal, absolutely a uh, pleasure to talk to you as always. I fully agree. That I'll simply conclude by saying that long India in that sense is very much a uh, civilization finding a state story. Uh, but to paraphrase what you mentioned, internal security breakdown basically means a breakdown of the state's monopoly or near monopoly on violence or initiating violence or initiating punishment of through violence, right? So basically... Uh, it all comes down to the narrow corridor society-state balance. In India, we've always had a very strong society, something you can be proud of. Some rough edges need to be removed, which we are in the process of doing that through Hindu modernity, the, what we call it. Uh, the state needs to be powerful, but the state needs to also be restrained and accountable through our democracy. And we are finally getting that balance right, more or less. So without the state, it's difficult to have economic growth. But if it's just the state, it becomes tyrannical and collapses on itself. So we, so long as we get that balance right, I think we are we are we are set. Yep, I, I think uh, you have summed it up beautifully. Uh, once again, thank you very much for coming. And uh, guys, uh, I would highly urge all of you if you have not subscribed to Harsha's Substack, go on long uh, on Long India. That's the name of his Substack. So you can go on longindia.substack.com and I have given the link in the description of the podcast of this very Substack too. So I would urge all of you to read. I mean, Harsh is on Twitter, X, whatever it is called. You can go and ask Harsh questions about the Substack also. And uh, as you guys know the drill, this podcast is member-driven. So if you can, please support this podcast through its membership program, whether on Patreon or on YouTube or on Fanmo. Jidhar bhi ho, kuch farak nahi padta. Member bano. Uh, or buy the merchandise or if you cannot do any of that just like the video subscribe to the channel or you know if you're an audio listener leave a rating on itunes spotify or whatever audio platform you listen to i will see you guys next time until then namaste take care bye